thank you guys so much for coming out. I was actually here a year ago, and it was just half the room. So I guess I've made some something like an impact over the last 365 days. Uh, so it's a blessing always to be in front of crowds and to travel in the way that I do with a message that I just hold so close to my heart and one that I believe just to be the truth. Um, so I want to actually start today by just discussing a current event because I really think it adds color to where we are at in society. Um, for those of you that pay attention to online trends on social media or what the Yahoo headlines are for the day or what the Twitter trending stories are, right now Mario Lopez, for those of you that don't know him, he is a former actor uh, who does a lot of work in Hollywood. He was on Saved by the Bell. Uh, he played someone named A.C. Slater, and he's had a pretty great rise in Hollywood um, and is very close with a lot of the leftists in Hollywood. And Mario and I began speaking over social media, and I invited him to come on my show, The Candace Owens Show at PragerU, um, because it's very rare that you get a celebrity um, in Hollywood that's willing to come out and speak to conservatives on the other side. And what I believe to be true is that we have to, conservatives have to win back culture. Um, we have to speak to people that are in Hollywood and get them to understand our perspective if we're going to make an impact. Uh, so Mario is a, a conservative and he was willing to come out of the closet, as I like to say, with his conservative principles. Um, first I had John Voight and then I had Mario Lopez and he kept the conversation, it was, it was very vanilla, uh, he wanted to be very safe and not to say anything that might upset the radical leftists. And at one point in the conversation we started talking about the LGBT movement and the T part of this is something that I've been very interested in uh, because for those of you that don't know, on, on the elementary school level uh, they're beginning to allow children to pick their genders. Uh, so you can send your child to elementary school and all day they can be calling your little boy her and she and they're not required to tell the parent that they're doing this. It's seen as an element of protecting the child and gender is, as you guys understand uh, today, the mainstream narrative is that it's just a construct and parents that don't accept this are bullied. So I try to provide a dialogue um, just so parents know what's going on in, in elementary schools and middle schools and high schools today because it's even dramatically different from when I was in school and I'm, I'm 30 years old. Uh, so Mario talked about this and he was very polite. He said, you know, I, I really, I, I, I trust children, I, I trust adults to raise their children in the way that they want to um, and I always want to respect that but for me personally, I think that it's dangerous when you start allowing three-year-olds to make permanent decisions in their life. Um, and he was referring uh, to allowing ch children, obviously, to pick their gender and go through something as rigorous as gender reassignment surgery so young. Um, that was his only statement. You know, I think it's dangerous to allow three-year-olds to make permanent life choices. Interview aired one month ago, and there was silence. Today, woke up, and... It's Cancer Mario Lopez, um, the Access Hollywood job that he has, is speaking out glad, uh, you know, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance um, is speaking out and they've issued a statement saying that they, he should have to give a, a sizable donation, he should lose his job, um, and it's, it's a really scary thing. Like, the, Mario, he just had a, his third child, um, I think two weeks ago, and he just signed a contract with access Hollywood uh, to do a show and all of that is now on the line because he said one sentence on my show and it's trending right now. Um, so I just wanted to just give you that perspective of where we're at in society where um, saying things that make sense 
um, and, and understanding that there are two genders, that you can be a boy or you can be a girl, saying that outwardly is now a means of losing your job and your source of income to provide for your family. And I feel, I've been feeling horrible all day about this because it's a hard, it's a tough conversation to have because there's nothing he did wrong, there's nothing I did wrong, yet it's gonna lead to such detrimental consequences uh, because we have the mob on the left uh, which is now dictating with this trans lobby that we all have to accept that children can choose their genders. A lot of this is why I do what I do. Um, and you know, I obviously get hit every single day. Uh, I, I like to say that once every two months I'm trending for something ridiculous. Um, and they, look, they have me pegged as the nation's first black white supremacist. So we've really, <laughs> we've really gone downhill very fast in society. Um, but this is real. You could speak to someone on campus and they will explain to you how I am a, a white supremacist because there is no reality anymore. It doesn't matter. So they will try to explain to you and use concrete detail um, to explain that there are some black people that wish to create a society that they will not be able to live in. That's the idea of what <laughs> a black white supremacist is today. Um, so I just speak about my values and where I came from and, and for those of you that have followed my story from the beginning, you know that I was a liberal. Um, I was on the left. Um, I was one of those people that believed because of the color of my skin uh, that I had to be a liberal. And if you had asked me coming out of high school, and I, I talk about the school system a lot and what it does because it is rotten and it's brainwashing children, if you had asked me out of high school uh, to, tell, to tell you my political perspective, I would have said I was a Democrat and I would have said that Republicans are racist. I knew very little. Um, I, I didn't know much about history, but I knew those two things to be true. Um, and that is a credit to our education system, which no longer challenges children to think critically. They challenge children to remember. And I tell this story the whole time um, about my upbringing, and I was always one of those kids that pushed back. People ask me now, how do you, how do you push back all the time? Where do you get the spirit? How do you, uh, you know, get the nerve to go up in Congress and say that to Ted Lieu and Jerry Nadler? And I just kind of just came out of the womb that way. <laughs> um, that's really, that really is the truth. I was a difficult child. I was always uh, never accepting my parents. Uh, they, you know, you parents love to say, because I said so, and kids are supposed to do whatever, the magic four words, because I said so. I always pushed back, uh, not against authority, but against unreasonable authority. I always demanded an explanation. I always wanted to think critically. To this day, I have to have an understanding of what I'm doing, um, and it, it, it can frustrate people. And I'm, today I'm friends with one of my high school uh, teachers, Mr. White, and we ping on Facebook back and forth. And he's a liberal, uh, you know, a, a classical liberal, the ones that disagree with you but believe that you have a right to exist, right? <laughs> you have a right to have a job and an income, one of those old school uh, types of liberals. He, he, was a, he was a great teacher and I drove him absolutely crazy. And he always says that if there was one person uh, that would be, end up doing what you are doing, Candace, I would have I put my money on you uh, because you were just a pain in my butt. And he, he tells the story of a, a test that I took on World War II, he reminded me of, and one of the questions on the test was why did, uh, why did America have to drop the bomb on Hiroshima? Pretty straightforward question. Everybody in the class obviously began scribbling the answer except for me. <laughs> I rose my hand because I had a problem with the question. And Mr. White said, you know, oh, Candace, what, what could possibly be wrong? And I said, you know, I don't like the way the question is phrased. 
I said, the, the answer is already implied. Why did America have to drop the bomb on Hiroshima? I would rather you asked us, did America have to drop the bomb on Hiroshima? A very important difference that I had already realized in high school. You know, one is asking me to think critically, to analyze everything that's going on and determine whether or not we had to take that action. And of course, maybe if I had, you know, if I sat down to think about it, my answer would be yes. You know, it put an end to a war and, and ultimately saved millions of lives. Uh, but not phrasing it in that way is the way the school system operates today. Um, and you see a lot of that. And I took, you know, Mr. I always say that Mr. White received a blessing just like my parents did when it was time for me to go to school. Mr. White received a blessing as it was time for me to leave high school and go to college. This is how adults get lucky. They don't have to deal with me and my frustrating questions. Um, and I was required to take, required being the key word here, um, a Feminism 101 course. I think this was really sort of the beginning um, of leftist dogma being taught in the classroom, requiring children to take things. I think my options were African American studies, gender studies, or uh, Feminism 101. <laughs> Interesting, right? So um, I went with what I thought was the less of the three evils, but now I think it is the number one evil. Uh, radicalized feminism is a, is a real issue we're facing today. And in this course, it was pretty ridiculous. Uh, there was, you could get an A in this class very simply. She had, we had this textbook, and it basically had every problem that women have faced since the beginning of dawn, the dawn of time. And uh, the answer, she'd pluck out one of these problems, and then she would turn around to the class, and she would, she would say, why are women facing this problem? And all we had to do was say, because of men. I mean, <laughs> it's a very simple class. So she'd say, you know, uh, why did I, lose my keys this morning. So smart. You are, you're going places. <laughs> a plus, and this is literally how the class functioned. And for me, that was like, ooh, I just, I sort of feel like maybe there's something else going on here. And this is sort of the, the early tide of blaming patriarchy when you see these radical feminists and they're putting on pussy, pussy hats is what they call them and, and they're shouting. This is, this is where they're getting that from, just so you know. We're learning this actively in the school system uh, and, and we're being taught this. And I remember one particular class, and it's such an important one that I go back to all the time, uh, where she plucked out one of her, her problems <laughs> in our mass, in this textbook, and it was about eating disorders. And the statistic that she had at the time was that 89% of people in America that are facing eating disorders are women. Then she turned to the class and asked the important question, why is that? Because of men. That's, oh my God, you're so smart. It's just, obviously, it's because of men. And I think I, I chuckled, like out loud. It was, just, it was just so absurd to me. And she turned around to me. We, we, were, you know, we were fast enemies already, you know, as soon as I sat down in the chair. And, and she said, what? You know, what, Candace? What could you possibly think is funny about this statistic? And I said, I mean, it can't all be because of men. And I said, and, and maybe there are some alternate statistics that we should be taking a look at, right? Like, what are the statistics? Of, of people in society that shoot up steroids to make themselves very muscly. You know, is that 89% of men? And is that because of women? And she was like completely lost her color. I mean, she was just like, oh my goodness. And she turned around to me and I'll never forget the word she said. She said, Candace, I just feel like you were sent to me from the men's department. It's <laughs> just. And I never forget this moment. She literally said that. And I turned around to her and I said, no, I feel like I was sent to you from the common sense department. <laughs>
And so much of what I do today really does just feel like common sense, right? Like I'm really, it seems heroic and revolutionary. It's just really common sense. I'm trying to bring back common sense. And we, we traded, you know, we traded bars back and forth. And, and then I, I shut down everything that she was saying. And for those of you that follow me and know, I do a lot of speaking in front of young women because when I was from the ages of 18 to 22, I actually had an eating disorder. So I was sitting in her classroom. I had anorexia for, for four years. I was sitting in her classroom and she was teaching me uh, that my anorexia was because of men and it wasn't. It just simply wasn't. Uh, I used anorexia as a control mechanism uh, when things went out of control for me when I was in high school. And yet here I was standing in front of her and she was saying, no, ignore all of that. She wasn't asking questions. She wasn't looking to turn around to women and ask about our experiences and why that is. She was looking to brainwash me, to tell me to be angry and bitter about men who she was saying control the marketing industry and were putting models uh, that were too skinny on the billboards. And it shut down that conversation really quick, saying, oh, actually, I have an eating disorder. That, oh, oh, whoa, now what is she going to do? That is probably, and I didn't realize it at the time, I realize this now in the retrospect, but that moment in my classroom really was the, the most basic understanding of the differences between liberals and conservatives, uh, between leftists and conservatives, right? You see, conservatives, or rather liberals, uh, when they have a problem, they look outwardly. They look externally. They say, I have a problem, who can I blame, right? If I'm a woman, it's because of men. If I'm poor, it's because of wealthy people. If I'm short, it's because of tall people. If I'm fat, it's because of skinny people. This is the way the leftist mind operates. And conservatives, we do something that's totally crazy. Uh, we say, maybe it's me. I have a problem. Maybe I have the power to, to fix it. Uh, maybe internally I can fix this. What can I do to change my circumstances? And that is seen as so crazy today. I dropped out of school. I was one of those kids that signed up really quickly uh, for school. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Took out $100,000 in student loans because you, you, know, you have the, the high school teachers that if you don't go to college, you will be a failure. Um, and I came from a family with absolutely no money. Uh, so I had to take out $100,000 in loans, and in my senior year, uh, Sally Mae had the collapse, and they denied my loans, so I had to get sent out into the world, $100,000 uh, plus in debt with no degree. I wish I could have just said that was because of men. I mean, really. <laughs> but I didn't. I, I got a job. I moved to New York, and I started working. And let me tell you, if Bernie Sanders is going to just absolve everyone's student loans after I paid 150K, he's going to have problems with me personally. Um, but I hit the ground running, and I worked, and I worked, and I didn't care anything about politics. I never did. And most, I would say, most black Americans, and for those of you that suffered through the debates last night, um, I didn't. I actually don't watch Mexico's, Mexico's presidential debates, which is why it seems like they're competing for, right? <laughs> um, for those of you that suffered through it, you're seeing that uh, at the nucleus, it's all about black America, right? It's all about reparations, what we're going to do for black America. And, and it's a ploy that they've been using for a very long time. And one thing to know about most black Americans is that we're so burdened by issues that were actually created by liberal policies and we don't come up for air fast enough to be able to understand that it's all related to liberal policies. And I really was that stereotype. Didn't care about the political debate, didn't care about the discussion, already knew Republicans were racist, uh, didn't care to even vote. I just uh, wanted to pay the student loans, had to deal with Sally Mae calling me every day, threatening to take my first child. Um, and that was sort of where my mindset was. And then this, this crazy thing happened in 2015, and a man by the name 
of Donald J. Trump who came down the escalator. Exactly. And didn't matter where you were on the political spectrum, didn't matter if you never paid a day of attention to politics, you paid attention on that day, right? Everyone suddenly became interested in politics when he came down the escalator. And this was my wake up moment. And I instantly thought, I woke up and I said, nope, <laughs> Donald J. Trump should not be the president of the United States. That was my initial reaction. I said, no way, this is the guy that says you're fired. He'll make a mockery of politics. He'll be so bad for America. It will look so bad uh, because he's too gimmicky. He's a joke. That was my initial response. But more important than the things that I, I was thinking were the things that I wasn't thinking. At no point in my mind did I say, he's a racist. And instantly, right after he came down and made that announcement, you turned on the TV and they, it was like he had never been in the public space before. And they had suddenly discovered that he was a racist a sexist, a homophobe, anti-Semitic, right? They said he was transphobic. Uh, they said at one point, and this is quite disgusting, that he was incestuous, that he had feelings for Ivanka. Do you remember that crazy story that they were circulating? Overnight, it was stunning. And that became my real aha moment. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, maybe I thought he was ill-prepared for the job, but I never thought any of these things. How can they destroy this man's reputation? He was loved. He was celebrated. Uh, for people that grew up listening to hip-hop music like me, all of the hip-hop artists wanted to be like Trump. It was Barack Obama, right, that said the American dream was to be like Donald Trump. This was an agreement across the board. Uh, and, and suddenly they wanted us to pretend they never celebrated him, that he was horrible. And the same people that loved him now hated him. And I asked myself a, a very important question that day. I said, is it possible that racism is now being used as a theme to turn black people into single issue voters? And of course the answer was yes. So I said, what am I gonna do about it? I've got, I feel like black America just needs to hear a different perspective, really. Um, and I didn't know too much, but I knew that the, the inkling was wrong. Something really wrong was happening there. And I had this genius idea uh, to launch a YouTube channel because I'm a millennial and that's what makes sense. And so, and to just present a different perspective, I, I didn't throw on a MAGA hat, I didn't say I was pro-Trump, uh, but I, I just started talking about conservative principles and when I started looking at policies, I was stunned to find out that I wasn't conservative. I wasn't blaming anybody for the things that I had done. I, I didn't feel that it was somebody else's fault that I didn't understand my student loans. I didn't want anybody else to pay them back. Um, I was raised by my grandfather who is actually staunchly conservative. Uh, he, he's one of those old school people that believes in God and believes in the family, you know, imagine that. Um, and, and we had so many rules in my household and nothing, actually nothing on the left was anything that I believed in. And, and what a surprise that was. And instantly, I put out one video, it was a satirical stab at how it's more complicated today to come out as conservative than it is to come out as LGB or T. And instantly I got hit and there were articles written about me um, and, and I was attacked, my family was attacked and they did the typical Uncle Tom, a, a coon, a house negro, a, you know, a, a bedwench, horrible, horrible racist stuff coming from the people that love black people. All they want, right, it's amazing. They love black people. All they wanna do is give black people a platform. They wanna make our voices louder. Oh, this is the party that loves women. Oh wait, are you conservative? Cancel, right? <laughs> are you a conservative black American? Cancel that. And it, it, I, I didn't feel deterred by it. I actually, I was inspired. The idea, you know, I, I was still the same Candace Owens. I, I don't like for people to tell me what to think 
it just drove me more. It drove me more into the fire. And I knew that I had to start researching. And I needed to, I needed to not just have the feeling, but I needed to have the facts on my side. Um, and I was stunned. I was stunned at the things that I found. You know, today, one of the things that, and, and I'm actually, my book announcement is coming in two days, and I'll give you guys a, a preview here. Uh, my book is, is called Blackout, and it's, uh, the subtitle is Black America's Second Escape from the Democrat Plantation. And I mean that, and, and the wall, yeah, you gotta hit home. <laughs> and I based that subtitle on a hit piece that was written about me in the Washington Post, actually. My good friends, the Washington Post, they write about once a month, a nice hit piece. And this particular hit piece said that Republicans are starting to use the term Democrat plantation, and it's wrong, and it had a big picture of me saying that I was the one responsible for popularizing the expression Democrat plantation. And in this piece, the, the, the author basically says how wrong it is and that black Americans do vote for Democrats all the time, but it's out of our own agency to do so. It's because we've looked at the candidates and we've determined that Democrats are just the best. And what the author was missing, because you know they don't contact you when they write these pieces, they just write them, they're activists. Um, what the author was missing was that I wasn't saying it uh, to be funny or to be controversial or to be cute or to popularize an expression. I said it because I meant it. Because after researching and looking at what the Democrats have done to black America, this is an ideological form of the very same plantations that the Democrats had back um, when we first came into this country. And I say the Democrats because at the start of the Civil War, uh, not a single Republican owned a slave in this country. Um, components, uh, in terms of slave life, slaves were not allowed to learn to read. Uh, it, was, it was very important that slaves were illiterate. In fact, it was so important that it was law that if you were taught teaching a slave how to read, you would be punished by the law if you were a white American. Um, and slaves were, you know, they would have their limbs severed if they were caught reading. Illiteracy was so important. If you saw my testimony in front of Congress, as these everyone is debating what's wrong with black America, no one is talking about the fact that our literacy rates are off the charts right now. 75% of black boys in California can't pass a basic reading exam. Uh, in the city of Baltimore, which the, which the president has finally shed some light on, across 10 schools, not a single black child can pass a literacy exam. That is stunning. All right, if, if anybody cared about black America, that would be the number one thing that they're talking about. Why aren't black Americans learning to read throughout the public school system? The second element, which is so important for people to understand, is the breakdown of family. And really, this, this is so much is wrapped into the breakdown of family. Pay attention to everything that is happening today. Their goal is to break down the family. I was, um, I was reading Frederick Douglass's uh, book. It was a narrative on, on his life as a slave. And he opens up uh, in, in talking about how he felt nothing when his mother died. He felt nothing when they moved him from the plantation where his sisters were on. He felt nothing for his family uh, because they wanted to make sure there was no bonding amongst slaves and their families because they were constantly switching and selling them. So a, a piece of that was to dehumanize them by making family the least important thing on a plantation. Well, look what's happening in black America today. Uh, in, in the 1960s, the single motherhood rate in black America was 23%. And at that time, that was considered monstrously high. It was a shock. There were articles written going, we have a problem here because 23% of black Americans are growing up without a father in the home. Today, the single motherhood rate is 74%. 74% uh, in black America today, and nobody's talking about that. It was Barack Obama that told, t told us what happens when people grow up without a father in the home. Uh, you are, are 12 times more likely to end up behind bars, uh, nine times more likely to lead a life of crime, six times more likely to drop out of 
of high school. Barack Obama gave you that. He said that it was the most important thing for people to be discussing was, was father absence, and yet no one talks about it today because they want that. And we see this promoted through various movements. Uh, everything that radicalized feminism is, everything that the LGBT lobby trying to turn men into women, right? You need to, you, you, being a man is wrong, Gillette commercial. If you have any impulse of masculinity, terminate it, it's wrong, right? <laughs> And then they're trying to turn women into men. If you have any impulse in maternity, if you want to raise your children, right? Um, there's something wrong with that. Why don't you want more out of businesses? You shouldn't want to, uh, you should deny your maternal instincts because there's something intrinsically wrong with that. That is the mainstream uh, narrative today. Uh, and it's what I speak out against when I say proudly that I'm not a feminist. Um, I don't support radicalized feminism in the form that it is taken today. You know, what it began as is not what it is today. And it's important that people see that. Another component of that is, is the popularization of mocking people that believe in God, mocking religion. That's mainstream now. When you see Joy Behar on The View and she's laughing um, and, and mocking uh, our vice president, Mike Pence, because he's faithful to his wife, right? Because he believes in Jesus Christ, because uh, he puts his, his life um, in the church above everything else. What is happening there? Is they're trying to popularize and make it seem weird for people that, that have any religious ties. And that too is a component because if you wanna grow government, right? You have to make sure that people believe in nothing else. Atheism is so important to the left because if you aspire to grow government, people must believe in nothing else. And that is, uh, that is a, a tribute to the Marxist doctrine and what we're seeing happen on the left as you see Ilhan Omar and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and these people are outwardly racist, outwardly anti-Semitic. Um, you know, uh, bitter towards Israel, bitter towards black, uh, towards white American men, right? Unless there's something uh, abnormal about you, you can't be a straight white male in society today. That is like pitchfork mentality and people come after you. Um, so I speak a lot about this and I've written a lot about this because people need to realize what's happening in society and, and what we're actually up against because what they're aspiring towards is just chaos. I was fortunate in one of my podcast episodes to sit across from Dennis Prager, who was just a phenomenal human being, one of the greatest orators of our time. Uh, and I asked him a question, uh, a very naive question. I said, why are they doing this? <laughs> what, is the, what, is, what is wrong with them? Why do they want up to be down and down to be up and for everybody to be sideways and constantly angry? He said, aha, <laughs> that's what you're missing. There is no reason. When you start asking why, you'll get into trouble because what they're after is complete and utter chaos. Uh, they want chaos. Um, and, and so it's important that we realize that and we try to stabilize that and that we have more people that are using their platforms to get out in front of, of this and, and speak about what the left is actually doing when they're pretending uh, that Venezuela is a dream, that Fidel Castro and Stalin were the ones that had the ideas right, that we need open borders. I mean, how insanely racist is that? Uh, it, it, first and foremost, abolishing ICE, abolishing Border Patrol agents. Over 50% of Border Patrol agents are Hispanic. <laughs> so you're talking about abolishing the jobs uh, for legal Hispanic American men um, in favor of importing illegals um, that are sanctioned by the cartels. I actually went down to El Paso, Texas at the wall to learn more about this because you ha in order to understand and to get around the narrative, you have to go directly to the source and speak to those people. Um, it was under Barack Obama in 2008 that the United States Commission of Civil Rights uh, did a report and looked into uh, our illegal immigration problem and they determined that the number one group of people that are impacted uh, by open borders or impacted by illegal immigration are black American men, 
uh, between the ages of 18 and 22. And that's because they are the low-skilled uh, workers, the low-wage workers. When you start importing illegals and they start doing work, they have to compete with them. If, they, if someone comes in and says, I'll do it for under minimum wage, that's a direct competition for black American, for black American men. This is what I tried to get out in front of people and discuss. I, I consider Trump and his presidency and, and the awakening that it brought into my life to be the greatest, one of the greatest blessings that I've ever experienced. Um, and it's largely due to the, the part, uh, due to the fact that he taught me how to love the American flag, um, to, for me to understand how important it is uh, and how grateful I should feel every single day to live in what I believe to be the greatest country um, on the face of the planet. Uh, a country that has brought us opportunities, a country that has its past and has its ugly spots, right? We know that every, every country, everyone in the world has its ugly spots, uh, but there's no greater country in the world when it comes to opportunity. And so often you hear people on the left say, oh, that's crazy. How can you say America is the greatest country, right? When you have people uh, that are getting higher math scores in India and in China and this and that. Well, why are they trying to come here? Why is it that when they pass all those exams, they want to come to America? What is it that America is offering that so many people want to come here? And, and what it is, it's, it's the American dream. It's my grandfather uh, who started his life on a sharecropping farm in Fayetteville, North Carolina, who grew up in the segregated South who had his first job when he was five years old, and that job was picking cotton and laying out tobacco to dry uh, at 5 a.m. in the morning, he'd say, before the sun came up, because otherwise it would be too hot. That was his first job. It's my grandfather who grew up with the real KKK, uh, not the fake Charlottesville tobacco that they try to create and pretend that suddenly the KKK is alive and well, but the real KKK uh, used to shoot bullets into his home at night because they had a problem with his father, my great-grandfather. And when my grandfather, and this is the interesting part, when my grandfather would tell me these stories um, around the dinner table, he never said it from a position of being a victim. Never, never not once. Uh, he said it from a position of pride, of victorhood. Uh, he, he'd say to me, uh, the KKK would come and shoot bullets, and my daddy would grab the shotgun and shoot back at them boys. You know, boys is what he referred to. The, the big, scary Ku Klux Klan that nobody has experienced, right? Um, and, and my grandfather moved up north and married my grandmother when he was 17 years old, stayed married to her until her dying day in 2013. Um, and we all, all of us grandchildren, uh, were able to live in their households at various points in their lives. And, and today, when my grandfather retired, he moved back down to Fayetteville, North Carolina, and, and he purchased the farm. He purchased the farm that he grew up in. He owns it. My grandfather is a hero, and, and he's an example of the American dream. That is the dream, that if you come into this country, uh, nobody cares about your color, your gender, your sex, your sexuality, nobody cares. If you're willing to work hard, right, and not complain, understand our values as Americans, this country will reward you. That's really what we're up against in, in 2020, protecting the values of what it means to be America, uh, pr protecting that dream. Never once in my household growing up did my grandfather ever utter a bad word about a white person. Did he ever say, poor me, woe is me? He never had that mentality. Victimhood has been a plague uh, across the board for all minorities and, and especially black Americans who are being taught that there is virtue in victimhood. There is nothing in victimhood. Uh, there's permanent upset. You can wake up every day and feel bad about yourself. Uh, you can find confirmation bias online to think that we're living in a horrible uh, position when in fact 
Uh, we are the most privileged people that have ever lived in the history of the world. That is the truth. If you live in America today. Making, making my grandfather's mentality relevant again, that is why I started the Blexit movement, uh, the black exit from the leftist ideology, from the lef leftist doctrine of victimhood in exchange for something that feels better. I think that we are, what we have is just a better product. I don't know, if I went door to door and sold someone misery and I said, hey, every day you could wake up and be really upset about something, right? <laughs> right? Find an article that'll make you really bitter or we can knock door to door and say, hey, uh, everybody has, has, has a bad story. If I went around this room and I said, tell me the worst part of your life, every single person in this room would be a victim of some sort. I know people that have, uh, have grown up in poverty like I have, uh, and people that have grown up wealthier and had worse circumstances. Uh, you know, losing a parent when they're young, whatever it is, everybody is a victim. But not everybody is a victor. That's a choice. Deciding to keep getting up no matter how many times you fall on the ground is a choice. And that's the choice that I try to go to door and door and give to minorities. To say, I, I know about being a victim, but what about being a victor? What about entering in the American dream again? How, how about that? What about championing your experiences? Um, that, is, that is what I hope that every single one of you will help us fight to protect in 2020. And it's a cultural fight. It really is. Uh, we gave up culture to the left. They're the ones that have SNL. Uh, they're the ones that make fun of conservatives. And, and we're, we stay so safe. We, we don't think we can be funny or we can venture out um, and do the same things that they're doing. But we can. And that's what I try to do with PragerU. That has been the blessing, fighting the cultural war every single day. And I have to say, uh, when we get to the point where they're starting to call black people white supremacists, we might be winning. We might be, we might be on the brink of winning. So. I want to thank you guys so much for having me and open up the floor to any questions. I think we should do some questions. Is that all right? Do we have time for questions? Awesome. First off, thanks, Candace, for coming back the second time. We well appreciate it. In, in the uh, description, you talked about winning the cultural war. We, we understand that that war starts with a victory, quite frankly, in the ballot box. What is it that we can do as political actuaries in order to be able to affect uh, an increase in the black vote specifically? Right. We've been talking about it for a long time, but what specifically do you see that needs to be done? Um, so yeah, so that victory actually starts ahead of the ballot box, is what I do every single day, um, which is just helping people to realize that by the way, you show me a black person in America, I'll show you someone that's conservative and doesn't know it. Um, we're all conservative. Uh, God-fearing, uh, in terms of the, mo the people that are the most conservative, it's, it's black Americans. We just need somebody to switch the light on. In terms of how you can help, I mean, I think, I can tell you when I started on YouTube and I started making videos, I didn't know where it was going to go. And somebody contacted me on Facebook. It was a guy out in California named Gabe. Um, and he said, listen, you're going places, you have a really strong message and I want to support you. He started supporting my Patreon, which is like an online, you can raise money to create art or whatever it is, and he sent $500 a month. That made all the difference, it's unbelievable. And now, you know, I don't need his $500 a month, and we think about just seeing talent, going online. There are so many young YouTubers that are trying to get their voices out. And um, sponsoring them, when we did the Black Leadership Summit, I, bought, I, I brought uh, 500 black conservatives or, or black conservative curious people, right? Conservative curious is what they like to call themselves at first, to the White House um, to meet the president. And each one of their flights was sponsored by a Republican, right? So these are kids that thought Republicans were racist. Republicans sponsored their flights. 
uh, I would say 70% of them had never been on a plane before. We had to get on the phone with their moms um, who were saying like, is this a scam, right? Like why, why would anyone want to take my kid out of the projects and, and invite them to hear uh, Dr. Ben Carson the, meet the President of the United States? And we said, no, this isn't a scam. And, and some of them had never been on a train before. Uh, we had one girl who went to Goodwill and, and uh, looked for a dress because she didn't know what to wear to meet the president. Uh, we had another young lady who borrowed her grandmother's dress because she didn't know what to wear to meet the president. And, and this is what's so important. When you have a community that has been so economically distressed by liberal policies, um, the left is able to keep them there because they never hear a different perspective. It becomes Plato's allegory of the cave. The shadows on the wall become reality because you've never stepped outside and you've never seen anything else. That experience, whatever it is that you can do to provide people, helps. Also, just sharing the videos. I mean, my videos went viral because people were just sharing the videos. You see something, don't be scared to hit retweet. Don't be uh, afraid to put it on Facebook. It's not coming from you if you're just sharing a video, right? You can just say, what do you think, question mark, and share a video of, of one of us ranting. Uh, there's so many ways to get involved, and obviously many of you guys already support you know, Prager University. They're on the front lines, I believe, of the cultural fight. Um, Turning Point USA, which is, you know, I used to work with them, I'm with PragerU now. There's so many amazing organizations that are, are giving, um, are trying to lift up these voices and get them on the front lines. But it is going to have to come from the minority community, I do believe that. And locally, we have the Rocky Mountain Black Conservatives who take 20 black college students to Washington every summer. I love Phenomenal that. Phenomenal program. Right. It makes a difference. And once they see it, they can't unsee it. That's all I can say. I always say this. I've seen so many black liberals go conservative. I've never seen a black conservative go liberal. There's something to it. <laughs> Sir? Candace, big fan. Um, Thank you. I was reviewing your CPAC speech um, recently, and you mentioned how the left has control over the culture. And, uh, and that how we have to grab it back. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on how that would happen. It seems yeah. almost impossible. Right, it's not. And I mean, this is why, I mean, like, the, we, need, we need to have conservative shows. I was speaking to the, some of the high school kids that are here today. I said, don't be afraid to try on humor. Um, when I first got started, I will share this, the National Review was one, among the first ones to write a hit piece about me. And what they said is that conservatives, these were the, this was the never Trumpers, it was, you know, uh, pre-Trump, but conservatives need to reject this sort of conservatism because I was being funny. I was, you know, making satirical, uh, comical s skits and they were saying, this is not what we do, it's not us. Um, and I look at that in retrospect, how harmful. How harmful to say there's not a place for humor. There's no better way to convey your message than to be funny. And the young kids in here, uh, the mean cultures, they understand this, I will tell you. He's laughing as he's like, yeah, they take a picture, they put one caption on it, and it gets a quarter of a million shares, you know, because it's funny and it, it you know, it drives a, a point home very quickly. That stuff works. I, you know, I saw when AOC dressed up in all white and put on red lipstick and he went to go look at a parking lot, I guess, at the border, <laughs> and I saw it circulating. So uh, me and my assistant, I don't know where she is, but I said, I'm gonna go put on all white and red lipstick and let's go, let's go recreate that, right? And I sent a message, I said, oh, you know, I, but I'm outside of a, a black school where they can't find a single child that's literate. It drove them a message, it, you know, it got millions of views and it went viral. That's how you can deliver a message and win a culture war, just being funny. Um, and I think that I do believe that conservatism or republicanism rather has been too austere in the past and people don't feel like they can relate to it. Um, it may make you uncomfortable, but don't reject things that are new. One of the things that always makes me cringe is when people say, 
you know, Trump's good, but I just wish he would stop tweeting. I'm like, oh, but that's how he won. <laughs> you know, that is literally how he is winning. Imagine if he relied on the mainstream media to get out his message. I mean, that would be ridiculous. So he's fighting a battle because he really understands social media and how it works, and he's perpetually trolling them. And trolling is a, is a component of, of the culture war. Thank you, Candace, for being here. Uh, just the other day, I heard a poll, not that I believe polls these days, but it said 82% of African Americans would never vote for Trump. Uh, I'd like you to comment on that and how you're relating. You know, this audience is pretty white. Uh, how often do you speak to black audiences? Well, the Blexit movement is just that. It's just, it's just minorities. So that's my Blexit movement when I go city to city uh, and take on inner cities. That's directly taking the message to black America. Um, and you have to do that. And, and by the way, I say black America, but as soon as I launched Blexit, I received uh, about a thousand emails from the Latinos being like, uh-uh, you're not leaving us out, we're the L. So now Blexit, <laughs> black and Latinos, I should clarify that. They were not playing around. And then I got, I got a bunch of emails from Asians, and they were like, there needs to be an Asian exit. Can you change it to black sits, black sits? I was like, okay, guys, we're getting a little crazy. Um, but uh, the Democrats know that that poll is fake. They know that because look at all of their debates today. They're literally, now the debate is black people take our money. Like, that's what they're saying now, right? Like, just take our money, we'll do anything. They know something's cracking and something's happening in the black community. And it, 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 the way, in the ways that they have tried to assassinate my character, they hate me. I mean, I'm a trending story. They accused me and Donald Trump of the mosque shooting in New Zealand. I don't even talk about Islam. I mean, it's like, it's unbelievable. Um, so there's a desperation and they're very, they're very afraid right now. And, and let me tell you something about why I'm so optimistic about black America. First and foremost, uh, I think somebody counted on CNN last week. They said the word racist 2,200 times in one week. That is remarkable. That is a talent. We should applaud them. Um, but Despite the fact that they have increased this rhetoric, support for Donald Trump amongst minorities has, has doubled, and that is verified by even an NAACP poll, right? And they were like, it's only 14%, whatever it is. They're all acknowledging that, it, that it's doubled and gone up since he's gone into office. That means black Americans are no longer listening uh, to, to the, race, the racism claims anymore, even though you may feel like it because you're hearing it from the mainstream media. Um, it really is becoming like the boy who cried wolf. When you call everything racist, it, it's really hard to make people feel anything about racism anymore. And they've, in my opinion, overplayed their hand dramatically. Um, and then the last thing that I'll add here is why I'm so optimistic is because for those of you that don't know, the Democrats rely upon the black vote, 100%. So um, Hillary Clinton got 89% of the black vote. We only have to move it five points in 2020 and their party's done. They cannot, if they, if they get 84% of the black vote, they lose. They cannot dip below 85% and sustain their party. So this, the desperation that you're seeing is because for the first time there's actually a monolith being broken and a dialogue happening amongst black Americans and that terrifies them to their core. Hi. Yeah. What message would you give to young people who are coming into looking at universities and colleges um, who have been brought up by mainstream media and are trying to figure out their own uh, message toward the, themselves because they have all they have seen their whole lives is media and Hollywood um, and what what message what uh, advice would you give them to expand their horizons you know so I will say this I am the most optimistic about Generation Z 
um, these younger kids, the millennials are the problem, right? The, the generation below the millennials, they're actually the solution. Um, they're really irreverent. They're the meme culture. Um, they're not as sensitive as the millennials were. I mean, they're, and, and they're trying out conservatism because they're being told they can't. And that's part of being young, right? Like, and what, are, what are we not allowed to do? We're going to go try and do that, right? Because it, it feels very rock and roll. So I'm actually optimistic about the younger generation. I just think that parents have to do a good job of preparing them for what college is. Um, and it really is just a virtue signaling totalitarian island. Um, and that's the truth. I mean, today when the Mario Lopez thing went viral, uh, I was talking to my fiance and there was a professor, she had a PhD, she went to like, you know, every university, she's got like 12 years of university under her belt and she was explaining to me that women can be men and men can be women. And I said to him, you know, you, you have to go to school to be that dumb, right? Like, <laughs> you really, you have to go to school to be that stupid. Um, and, and that's kind of where we're at now, where it's like the more school you do, the, the further you are from reality, um, and because and you, you have no real life experience. Your life experience is in a classroom. You don't know what a dollar means. You don't know what hard work means. Um, so I would, I would say making sure that the kids know that the professors, the Marxist professors, are not real life. And also uh, give them the courage and the power to know that, that, you have, that they have your support. It's really hard uh, being a conservative. Uh, in high school or in college today and standing behind them and saying, you know, no matter what happens, like I always say, I will be in a, a school administration's worst nightmare. I will live in the principal's office um, when I have children someday um, and fighting with them every, every step of the way and making sure that they're taking practical majors, right? Not feminist dance class, right? <laughs> I think that's always a good start if you tether them to reality via science and maths and engineering and the things that we actually need. Um, you'll, you'll produce uh, children that are more tethered to reality. Hi there, Britta Horn. Thanks for coming and joining us here in the mountains. I'm from McCoy, and my question is, not more of a question, I just want to hear more about your book that's coming out, Yeah. and if you could tell us a little bit more about the process and how long it took to write. Yes, so, huh, the pro I'm still writing it. It's on pre-sale. It's almost done. Um, but, you know, I... I always knew I wanted to write a book. I wanted to make sure the timing was right, and I never wanted to be one of those people that paid someone $100,000 to write their book because their brand is, is hot. And that's really across the board what happens a lot. And for me, it was it had to be me. So actually, one of the things that me and the publisher are going back and forth on is they're like, you know, a softer title, you know, be nicer. And I'm like, yeah, I don't really do that, right? You know, that's not really my brand. I'm more of a flamethrower because we need flames thrown right now. Um, uh, flamethrowing lights the path towards truth, in my opinion. Um, so for me, I wanted it to be sort of my, my thesis for people to say, who is Candace Owens? Where did she come from? Because one of the things that the left tries to do is they try to make me white. I don't know. Like, like I'm a rich white girl from Connecticut. It's really, I hear articles about myself. I'm like, I sound like I grew up really wealthy and like I had, like I had, like I didn't come from a, a, a really broken childhood and my father is an alcoholic. Um, you know, and uh, you know, grew up in a very abusive home. I wanted to tell them those stories. I experienced a hate crime when I was in high school, and actually uh, being the victim of that hate crime actually shaped a lot of my views towards this path that people try to make people think that you should aspire to be a victim and that that's gonna somehow make you feel good. It doesn't, it's about championing uh, your, your victim experiences. So I wanted to give people a piece of me so they know where I came from, where these ideas came from and why I view the left as so dangerous and, and trying to uh, 
first and foremost, strip people of their self-confidence. I think that's the number one thing that they do. They're killers of self-confidence. They make you believe you, you can't the whole time, especially as a black American. You're just sort of like, hey, you're black, so uh, it's going to be a tough ride for you because of white supremacy and white people have it better. I mean, you're really telling a kid they can't before they even try. Um, so I wanted it to be very serious um, in its tone and obviously with my personality, there definitely are a couple of Candace gems in there. And to tell people what socialism is. You talk to kids, say they know exactly who Adolf Hitler is, uh, right? But they, ne they have no idea about Joseph Stalin and, and Mao, who killed way more people. Why is that? Why aren't we learning about the dangers of socialism? Why do we have these kids walking around with Fidel Castro t-shirts, um, showing them the harms of that and using black America as the experiment of what socialism brings? Because they really did socialize black America first via the welfare system, and, and we see what that produces. So. Um, it's a lot in there, but um, I think it, it will. I want it in the hands. I say to everyone, buy the book and then donate the book to a Black American. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Give it away. Okay. Any who has the mic? Yeah, Sorry. I do. Yeah. Uh, could you tell us about any challenges you've had and your strategies on how to deal with uh, any censorship from YouTube or Twitter? Oh, um, could I'm either the right or wrong person to ask this? So I and I actually hold. Uh, I think the the trophy. I have been banned from YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, and Lipitel about it. They all reinstated my accounts. I'm the only conservative that can say that. And they didn't just reinstate my accounts, they reinstated my accounts within 20 minutes of suspending the accounts. So I think how it goes is they go, oh, conservative idea, suspend, ban. And then they looked at me and they were like, oh, 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 wait, she's black. We can't say we were, <laughs> we can't say we were banning white supremacy. And then they bring my, bring my account back. So um, the magic of how quickly I get brought back is really a tribute to the fact that they, um, they can't censor me. I'm in that weird spot, right, where all they're claiming to fight is uh, white nationalism and white supremacy, and I don't really fit the standard. They're trying to make it fit. Um, but I don't, I don't look like a white supremacist yet, yet, according to them. So, uh, but the war and the censorship on social media is an important one. It's something that I think the president, and he has, he's spoken about it, um, but it's gonna have to pick up. We're okay in the short run. I know a lot of conservatives are really worried about it. They're like, well, they started on the fringes, they banned Alex Jones and, and people like that, and, and now they're sort of working their way in. That's true, but also remember that when you ban someone, like Alex Jones, who has a massive following. For those that don't know, whether you whether you think he's completely insane um, or you think that he says things that are are, are true, he has a massive following um, and a worldwide following. The people that follow him don't suddenly go, oh, well, I guess I'm a liberal, <laughs> right? No, they actually dig their heels in further, and they're more conservative. Like they you they are the the most conservative people are the ones that are watching. Um, the people that they follow get banned. So we're fine in the, in the short run in terms of the 2020 election, in terms of people that they've, that they've banned. I think it's actually created more of a conversation and it's making conservatives that were maybe a little um, more in the middle, pushing them a little further to the right and understanding that we're fighting something that's, that's very real and dangerous. Um, I'm Stan Tenner. Ah. I just wanted to make a comment that uh, I've been watching the uh, Debates, the uh, Democratic debates. I'm sorry. A few times. Yeah. It's the scariest comedy on TV. <laughs> and, uh, I wanted to point out that there was uh, no American flag on the stage. If either one of those debates, I kind of wonder who they were, what country they were running for. Mexico. 
Um, no, I mean, that, that makes sense. Anti-Americanism is being taught in the school system. It's completely rotten. Um, there's, like, I, I actually, I had Steve Bannon on my show. It's, that's the one that's airing on Sunday. And at the El Paso board, we, we talked about this. And he, he and I disagreed. So he, he was right in his assessment um, about the fact that millennials grew up and they didn't understand. You know, we weren't exposed to true capitalism. We were exposed to crony capitalism, which could in turn make people bitter about capitalism um, because we don't know how the free markets are supposed to work, right? And he was basically saying that until we bring back real capitalism, the real free markets, and, mill and millennials get a taste of what that is, they're, they're going to uh, tread towards socialism. And what I said to him is, oh, you're wrong. You know, uh, even if you brought back all the jobs and, and uh, you brought back free markets and they all had advantages and opportunities, they would still, they wouldn't take them because they're learning actively in school that there's something inherently wrong with success. They're learning that, um, that Americans are, are evil colonizers, right? Um, and that there's virtue in standing up and saying that I hate being American. That is being taught actively in the school system. So millennials don't want success, right? They want to see everything given away. They, they, they wake up and they think there's something inherently wrong with being an American. And I don't know, I mean, I, I do everything I can um, to descend on these college campuses and, and, and to speak about this and to instill the values um, of what it means to be an American, the true values. Uh, but it is an uphill climb in terms of what we have to do to win the school systems back, I'll tell you that much. I was in an auditorium at UCLA the students broke out into a USA chant, and then the other people stood up and said, that is racist. USA is racist. And I said, whoa, well, it's going to be an interesting, you know, the Olympics is going to be really interesting. If you're wearing USA is racist now, if you're wearing an American flag, you're racist. Yeah, unfortunately, right? But that's, this, is what they're lear this is what they're learning, that being pro-America is racist. So it's, it's pretty scary. I wonder if you could comment on the movement for reparations and what the consequences might be. Oh my gosh, man. I'm either the right or the wrong person to ask. Um, so it's comical on one end. It's really funny. Um, it's a massive insult, I think, to black America. Um, and it just shows you how ridiculous they are. And they're constantly running in circles and they're so hypocritical. So let, let's just talk about what the Democrats have said over the last few years. This year. Let's just take this year. We don't have to go, we don't have to go back far. Voter ID laws would be racist. Black Americans essentially are too stupid to figure out how to get ID, right? Like you can't do anything in this country without ID, right? You can't drive, you can't buy a pack of cigarettes, you can't walk into, you know, you can't go to a bar, you can't have a drink, but somehow black Americans are too dumb to figure out how to get ID. And if that was a requirement, we wouldn't be able to vote. That has been the basis and the thesis of their argument against voter ID laws. But reparations, somehow, every black American is going to be able to produce their ancestral paperwork to show that they're related to Harriet Tubman. I mean, really, <laughs> it's just, I'm like, come on, really, are we doing this right now? So, no. And what I say to black America is, even if they figured out how, how they're gonna figure out which white Americans fought against the South, right, go figure that. What, blood, what are we doing here, blood test? Oh, you're from the North, you're okay. This guy's gonna pay, he's from the South. What if you have a, you know, parents, one was up in the South? I mean, it's completely crazy, it's never gonna happen. This is just a talking point. Um, and they're going to put together committees to make themselves look serious so they can get the black vote because the black vote is the most important. It's the easiest way that their party can slip and lose power um, completely. Uh, and so what I say to black Americans, just what an insult. And I said, even if they figured the entire thing out, what do you think you're getting? A $300 check? 
like something like it, it's going to mean absolutely nothing. Um, and so I try to get out in front of that and I say that it, it is really a great insult and they think black Americans are stupid. They've proven that time and time again. And what I say to black America is we have to in 2020 stop proving them right. We have to demand actual conversation, actual solutions. We have to start talking about Baltimore. We have to start talking about Chicago. Um, we have to start talking about the illiteracy rates. We have to start talking about why progressive policies always lead to regressive results for black America. We have to start talking about abortion um, and why more black children um, are aborted than born alive in cities like New York. We have to talk about why the governor is lighting up uh, the city pink to celebrate being able to do that at nine months in the womb. Real conversations, not reparations, is, is what I'm demanding. That rhymes. Can we get that on a t-shirt? Where's my assistant? It's good, yeah. We'll do that. <laughs> um, can you talk about the difficulty finding certain politicians and celebrities to debate you? <laughs> Who would you love to debate if you could? And can you expand on the situation with Cardi B? Cardi B. All right. Who does not know who Cardi B is? Oh, come on, be honest, come on, you don't all know who Cardi, all right, there we go, no shame, it's fine, it's fine. All right, so we know that every election cycle, the left looks for their hip hop artist or R&B star that's going to just put on a shirt and say vote for this person and millions of people are gonna do it. In 2016, it was Beyonce and Jay-Z, remember? Like when she, should have, she could have been talking to Americans, but Hillary was throwing the Beyonce and Jay-Z concert because I'm sure she listens to Jay-Z every morning. Um, so I had been talking about that, how they do this every four years, and a star that sort of rose is, is a woman named Cardi B, right? So she started as a stripper, um, and then she was put on a VH1 show, a reality show called Love and Hip Hop, um, and then she, and I will say, I've watched the show, she was a diamond in the rough in terms of She's got that it factor because she's unapologetically herself, like she's no shame. And that people gravitate towards that where you're just like, I, you know, it's like the Jersey Shore Snooki phenomenon, right? <laughs> really bad TV that you can't look away from. Um, now she's an actual hip hop artist and she's the biggest hip hop artist in America right now. She's a rapper um, and she has a massive following. I think she's got something like 50 million followers on Instagram and she just does these rant videos and she's been ranting about how Trump's a racist and I had been watching that for a while and I said, they're gonna go for Cardi B. Like, it makes sense. She ranted last year about how, she actually is a conservative. She started her life from nothing, is something now, and when she started making money, she ranted about how ridiculous her taxes were. She's like, she was like, where's all this money going? She's like, this isn't tax, this is charity. And I pinged her and I'm like, please Cardi, you're a conservative, trust me, like let's just, sit down for a second and then I pinged her last year on that. A week later, she was taking pictures with Malia and Sasha Obama. A week later, it was phenomenal. Last week, she posts a picture of her sitting down with Bernie Sanders. And she starts asking everybody who they're voting for and suddenly, and because she doesn't understand policy, she has no idea, she knows she's getting taxes getting taken out and it's wrong, but now she's taking, she's sitting next to Bernie Sanders. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, right? I'm literally, I'm just like, he will take 75% of your wealth. Like, this is Hugo Chavez, right? Um, and so I challenged her to a debate and offered her a quarter of a million, to raise a quarter of a million dollars that she could send to any charity that she wanted to, because it's that important. I, honestly, if I could have raised a million dollars to get this woman on stage, that, that's important. Uh, you have to pay attention to those stars that are just able to go put on a t-shirt, I'm with her, um, and Bernie is catching a bit of a, of a wave in, the, in black America. Hip-hop artists are getting behind him uh, a, a lot for some reason, and I'm assuming it's because they don't, I don't know, they want to give up all their money. Um, 
so Cardi responded to my debate request and was like, you know, she was civil. She was like, I'm just standing behind my candidate in the same way that you stand behind yours. Like, I'm not showing up because she, you know, none of them want to show up and debate. That's the whole point. Uh, AOC was offered, NBC reached out to us and said they would love to have us both sit down and have a debate. AOC declined, I said yes. Um, when you're lying, you shouldn't debate, right? That's a pretty good rule to follow. So the left will never debate a conservative. You'll never see a leftist debate a conservative because they don't want to be exposed for the frauds that they are. And it's an uphill climb, but I do think it helps when we challenge them to debates and they decline them. I think it makes their followers go, well, if everything you're saying is real, just expose Candace, right? Just expose her as an Uncle Tom race trader. If I'm actually all of those things, they should be happy to sit down with me and to expose me for that. But they don't do that because they know that I'm on the side of truth and they're on the side of lies. Are you really? <laughs> Someone back there asked the question, if you're going to run for president. <laughs> Why, you guys, you guys don't like Trump? Right? We have an awesome president. No, I, I, knew, I knew what you were getting at. Um, you know, I always, I've always used to always say blanket no across the board because I think that you can box harder from the outside and make more of an impact. But now I just say exactly what Trump said 30 years before he ran, which is that if my country needed me, I would raise, you know, I would raise to the challenge and I would run. Uh, but at this point in time, I have no political <laughs> Candace, welcome to Colorado from somebody whose family has been here for seven generations. Oh, wow. But also, I wanted to know if uh, Black Lives Matter has ever invited you to speak. They have not, but I had them on my show, of course, because I, I like talking to the other side. So one of the first episodes of the Candace Owens show on PragerU uh, was to invite the leader of Black Lives Matter in New York on my show because, I mean, their ideas are so stupid, you got to give it a platform, right? <laughs> So we debated uh, for uh, an hour and 10 minutes, and it was just, it was so bad for him that Black Lives Matter people were writing saying, he's not the real representative. I'm like, he's the chairman of Black Lives Matter. I mean, who else could I, I didn't find a random kid protesting. I got to the chairman, and he's just sitting here, he, he acknowledged all my points. I'm like, hey, uh, so you acknowledge that white American men are more likely to be shot and killed unarmed by police, yeah. You acknowledge that Hispanic American men are more like, yeah, but we have to start with black America. So you acknowledge that as a black American, you have a higher chance of being struck down by lightning than you do of being shot and armed by a police officer. Yeah. You acknowledge that a police officer is 18 and a half times more likely to be shot by a black man than the other way around. Yeah. I mean, it was just like, and then he says, then I, the best part is, and I get to all this and I say, so you care, you really care about black lives. Yeah. And he, he's like, yes, of course, that's, that's my main thing. We have to make sure we protect black lives. So you're pro-life. No, 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 I don't get into that debate. 18 million black babies aborted since 1973, nine month term abortions on the line, more black babies aborted than born alive in, in inner cities. And this man is sitting across from me telling me that the important thing to go after is that the thing that's impacting uh, one six, 16 uh, black Americans a year. And uh, you know, that equates to 0.00004% of the black population is impacted. Um, and it's actually creating more of a problem for black America because police officers don't want to do their job. Um, so it actually raised the rate of homicide. It went up by 19% across the country after the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, which is harmful. So I basically exposed them to be fraudulent and I'm seeing 
it's changing now where he, he, I stay in touch with him and you know like they've done uh, you know some things where they stood with the police officers in New York against uh, uh, Bloomberg um, yeah so they've done some things now they're a little more conservative but I said to him if you pick up a, a, a more pro-life stance and talk about how it's negatively impacting black America and drop this bogus claim against our police officers and our lower law enforcement officers who have the toughest one of the toughest jobs in America um, then I would I would be vocal for you but until then you guys are you know morons and that's really what they are hi check check just want to make sure it's working <laughs> um, I just want to thank you so much for coming um, my wife who couldn't be here with uh, me today we're both big fans we've been following you since the very beginning we've been spreading the word about you and pray you and Alex Jones around this valley which is kind of a democratic stronghold if you have yeah. of that. So, uh, thank you so much for coming thank uh, you. two quick questions one can I have an autograph yes and two, <laughs> who of democratic clown show do you think will make it to the very end do you think anybody even has a chance. You know what? I mean, up against Trump, I, I actually think it'll be Kamala Harris. Yeah, I, I just something, I, I just think it's going to be her because she sort of has backtracked on like the more, I mean, I mean when I say backtrack on the more insane rhetoric, it, it, I think it's going to be Kamala Harris for a lot of reasons and she's already throwing, calling other people racist, which is interesting, like early she's like, Joe Biden, you're a racist, you know? Um, so, and she's got the minority, she checks the minority box and if that's what they're looking for, I don't see how, it'll be Kamala or it'll be Bernie. Bernie might get more of the black vote though. Yeah, and she's also not black. So she, when she was sworn in, for those of you that don't know, now she's black because she's running for president. But, but when she was sworn in, she was sworn in uh, as an Indi as a Ind Indian, yeah, Indian American. So suddenly she was like, you know what, actually it'd be more convenient if I was black. And so she's changed her, she's changed her race over the last two years. So it's been interesting. Hmm? Okay, um, my question. The stand? Oh, Jesse Smollett, yeah. <laughs> Are they related? No. You can't start that conspiracy theory. I'm, I'm definitely gonna look into it. <laughs> okay, my question is, uh, this article yesterday explained to the best, people of color hijacks black America's hard-earned legacy, and I'm sick of it, Kira Davis, Red State. I wonder what you thought about that war of uh, labels between people of color and black. And what was it like uh, running into Kamala Harris the other day? Oh yeah, you guys didn't see that. I ran into her at the airport and I couldn't resist. Um, so I went up to her, I photobombed her first and then I went up to her and she was like, oh, hello, are you one of my supporters? And I was like, oh no, I'm Trump 2020. And, <laughs> and she was like, that's okay, that's okay. And then ironically, we were getting on the same flight. We flew to Detroit together. Um, and uh, yeah, she, you know, she was nice and, under, and understanding. She's very small, by the way. So that's, that'll be something that'll, that'll pick up. I don't think people realize how small she is, but uh, she was nice. She was you know, nothing bad to say about her. She totally respected the fact that we travel in an army of MAGA hats and that we were Trump 2020. And of course she understands. He's the greatest president. I mean, what's not to understand? <laughs> Hello. Hello. First in appeal kind of question. Okay. Uh, seeing as we're in a Jewish community center, can I make appeal to you to put a J in our blanket? <laughs> <laughs> um, so here's the question. You do a magnificent job of explaining how progressive policies actually devastate the very people that they purport to help. 
problem is that conservatives are still perceived as the black-hatted while progressives get to coast on their benign intentions above the wreckage of their policies. I think that we also need to advance a narrative about how our ideas will actually help everybody, especially the most vulnerable. Right. So how would you do that? Well, I think conservatives have got to get better at fighting. I mean, Trump's a fighter, right? Uh, so just a case in point, they called him a racist for pointing out the truth about Baltimore. What did he do? He doubled down and then called them racist. That's incredible. I mean, I've never, I mean, it's never in my life. Could you imagine any other candidate that ran against him? Who was his runner-up in, was it Ted Cruz? Who was, who was his, was it Ted Cruz? I can't imagine any of the other uh, Republican people that were running against him that would have ever had the gall to do that, to say like, not only am I doubling down, I'm tripling down, quadrupling down. He sent like 20,000 tweets about it and then said, you know what, you're racist, right? I mean like that, that's pretty incredible. And he's right because their policies are, if, you, if a definition of racism, it, 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 as the left has purported it, is things that are harmful to black Americans and that are particularly going after black Americans disproportionately, then the most racist people in the United States are the leftists and the Democrats, right? Every single one of their policies harms black America. I, I cannot think of a single good thing that liberal policies have brought to black Americans. I can't. Um, and I'm looking for it. If I'm wrong, please correct me. If there's even one, let me know. Um, so I think that part of it is, is a little bit of courage is, is needed uh, to go in there and to not be afraid of being called racist. That's like, I mean, now these names, it's like Pokemon. You've got to catch them all. Bigoted, racist, sexist, misogynist, homophobe. Great. Get past that. You're going to get called a few names. But the truth, getting to the heart of it, and Ron DeSantis was incredible at this in Florida. He won because he received, he received addition, what they were not expecting him to receive 19% of the vote from black women. And what did he do? He went door to door, was sitting to them, talking to them about school choice. Very simple. What do black American women who we know are running the households because of the single motherhood rate care about? Where their kids go to school. Take something that matters to them that we that we care about. We we you know we're pro school choice. That matters. You don't have to get lost on the left and right. You don't have to put on a MAGA hat even. You don't have to say I'm pro Trump. Talk, speak to what actually matters. And, and black American women care deeply about opportunities for their children. And and to communicate effectively, I think is also really important. Uh, not speaking above anyone's head. Trump is brilliant at that. He can take a, a chance and you get everything he means, right? Lock her up. Oh, the president should be above that. He is taking something, breaking it down and, and, and saying basically they're frauds. They're, they've been doing dirty things. They're taking things from America. He turned it into a hashtag that was trending and it felt cool and it felt relevant. My Blexit movement, look at what we're wearing. T-shirts, bright colors, Afropop, it's definitely not CPAC, right? <laughs> um, and, and it's more appealing in that way. And we have white speakers there too to talk about things that matter because this is not, we're not creating segregation, right? We're trying to do the opposite and remind people that we can all you know, live together peacefully. Um, and, and all of those ways, making things cool and relevant and not being afraid to talk about the better ideas which are on our side. And I, I would recommend not starting at I support Trump because there is still a little bit of Trump derangement syndrome in the black community, which I'm working to reverse. I'm getting close. Thank, let's thank Candace for coming. Thank you so much. And, and thank you all for coming.